welcome to Disruptive Narratives Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Lewis. And I'm producer Miranda Wilson. In these episodes, we will be highlighting people who are impacted by histories and systemic processes of neglect and disinvestment, but do not have a seat at the table and may not feel seen. This is a space for people that are in a place of radically reimagining a path forward, but not necessarily a space for those who are unpersuaded by the need for a better world where Black futures matter. We are focused on sharing perspectives that are often unshared or unheard because they challenge what we think we know. In this podcast, guests are the experts of their reality. Dr. Crystal Moulton is curator of African American history and the Division of Work and Industry at the National Museum of American History of the Smithsonian Institute. A South Side of Chicago native, she has taught at small liberal arts colleges on the East Coast and in the Upper Midwest, including McAllister College. Her research includes the intersectional connections between African American labor, business, and civil rights history, with emphasis on post-World War II Black freedom movements in the urban Midwest. So in this first part of the conversation with Dr. Moten, we hear from both of you about why you found the traditional structure and roles of the academy uh, didn't support you in being your whole selves or exploring knowledge that you wanted to explore. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to dive into that conversation right now, starting with you mm-hmm. and uh, not not knowing what a PhD was or how to get it. Right. I couldn't have told you um, as a young black girl what a PhD even was. Um, I couldn't have told you how to get it. Um, I couldn't tell you that I actually knew someone that had one. You know, I spent... um, a chunk of my teenage years um, as a homeless teen, um, couch hopping and a black woman um, took me in. Someone with very little means um, gave me kind of the love and attention I needed um, as a young black girl. And I would argue, I don't feel like I realized it then. Um, so when I got to McAllister, I really realized it. Um, how much um, her showing me that level of love and intention coming from a black woman who I argue economically was struggling, um, but had so much love to give, taught me about life and taught me about humanity. Um, and I'll be honest and tell you that when I got into those classroom settings with McAllister students um, and the ways in which black women were talked about in literature, like that was not one black woman I knew. And that was frustrating for me. Um, I mean, at that time, I'm young and I'm figuring it out. Um, my first year in college was so hard. Um, I kind of got, I was angry. I was an angry student. <laughs> I came with venom in these classrooms, okay? Um, I learned a lot by, you know, asserting myself in those spaces, but I felt like I needed to defend myself and women like Miss Dorothy, who took me in and really gave me the love I really needed. Um, And then I became really intrigued um, by, I was learning a different way in which the people I love the most were being represented. And it was like hurtful and appalling to me. Um, I went to college thinking I was gonna be a journalist. Um, I got like these black journalist scholarships. Um, I wanted to be an investigative journalist. 
Um, I thought I was going to travel the world and uncover the things. Um, and then I met, you know, Dr. Rachel Ramos and Dr. Duchess Harris, uh, Dr. Um, Jane Rhodes. Um, and I learned that there was multiple ways to kind of investigate and reevaluate history. Um, and I, I think being exposed to that um, really opened my mind to what was possible. Um, and I learned through them. These are women of color, PhDs, that I otherwise wouldn't have the opportunity to have met and got mentored from um, that showed me that I could actually be a part of rewriting the canon, right? So the canon is this term that we use to discuss um, texts and or voices that are well-respected in a field that presumably we all should know, right? Um, and presumably we all should know and cite because the framework under which they've made meaning defines the whole field in many ways, right? But what shouldn't shock you is a canon is usually white and male, right? Um, so I kind of entered the academy knowing my goal was to disrupt the canon because that's not knowledge systems under which I'd argue has sustained me and it taught me about humanity, life and living. Um, and I really wanted to disrupt that. I wanted to disrupt the notion that the canon was objective because it never was. And much of the canon and the, the folks that we claim to be within the canon built their careers off the backs of black women. So for me, I came in very fiery. <laughs> I think when I describe what the classroom setting was like for me, you know, I was really, I came in, I used to read Bell Hooks and Audre Lorde, and I used to pull quotes, ready to just throw them at people. I was ready, because I was just like, they don't talk about them as the canon. They're a part of this canon. And I was, you know, very outspoken that way. And I also realized that it wasn't always in my better interest, because, um, like, my grade was on the line and people were saying things. Um, that's what got me here. I'm really, really honored to be in conversation with Dr. Moen because I'd argue that we probably have um, similar experiences and shared emotions about the academy um, and this notion of who gets to speak for whom, how Black women's knowledges are valued or devalued. Um, and I would love to kind of ask you what led you to your work today and your journey here in or out of the academy um, and you know where their synergies or overlaps in some of what I've shared about my own story. Yes. How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> well, so um, first, in terms of thinking about where I am today, right now, I am a curator at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. Um, and I'm two years or a year and a half into that position. But I came to that position after, like you, Dr. Lewis, leaving uh, a relatively um, comfortable and secure enough position in the professoriate. I was an assistant professor at McAllister College, your alma mater, and I had just successfully went through my mid-career review, um, which at McAllister is an external review process, pretty successfully. Got some really good feedback on my teaching, on my research. Of course, I was doing too much service. Um, but during that reflection process, as I thought about my path along the tenure track, I was like you, I was unsatisfied. I thought, hmm, you know, while McAllister is a pretty cush job, it's a good job. Who am I teaching? Who am I reaching? Um, what is, who, who's my audience, basically? 
And I realized that it was a very privileged, elite group of students who I love teaching. Don't get me wrong. I love teaching at McAllister, but I realized that wasn't exactly what I had envisioned for myself when I signed up. <laughs> you know, to, 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 to start graduate school and to become a professor of African-American history. I, I did not envision entire classes of white students. And I had one class, I was teaching a black woman's history class, and there was not one black woman or black student in that class. And I just thought, wow, wow, this is far from what I envisioned. I didn't come in so fiery and self-aware, right? I just came in knowing that I came from a background in Chicago, specifically going to the Chicago public schools where I had the, the privilege of having Black women teachers who were Afrocentric, who taught me um, Black poetry, who taught me that the li that lift every voice and sing started off as a poem and that you need to know all three stanzas of the poem so that you can be able to sing that thing with some confidence, who told me about Kwanzaa, and the Nguzo Saba, which are the seven principles of Kwanzaa. You know, I, I, I had um, all of that in my knowledge and in my experience and in my heart. And so I knew that when I got to college and I did not see Black women in books, I knew there was something wrong here, that the part of the equation was missing because I had just experienced all of that. And so it actually was not until my senior year in college that I took a class on Black women's history. Why? because that was the first time it was offered. And I took a class with Dr. Leslie Brown, um, and she made us read the anthology Words of Fire, um, which is an anthology or collection of Black feminist thought um, over the course of, you know, United States history. And so I began to read the words of Black women across time and space. And that was the first time I had done that. And what it caused me to do was say, hey, you know, I knew I was going to graduate school, but I didn't know exactly what for then. In that class, I realized I am going to graduate school because I am going to write about Black women and their activism. I have a sense that it's a story that can be told, but I don't have the skills or the tools right now to tell that story. And so I'm going to go to graduate school to learn how to tell, tell those stories. Graduate school was interesting um, for me because I mostly sat in my seminar silent. I didn't say a lot at all. Um, and it was because while in some seminars we would read African-American history, I just didn't see, you know, the working class, urban Black woman in those stories. Um, and, I, and I didn't know how to connect what I was reading and what my classmates were saying to what I was thinking and the critical ways I was reading those texts because I didn't feel like my, my criticism would be valid. And so I spent a lot of my time silent in graduate school in graduate school seminars. And it wasn't really until I started getting into the archive where I had some stories to back up what I was thinking that I began to become more vocal. Um, so I'll stop there. But so many, so many connections already that I see. Yes, yes. I, I really appreciate you being honest about what that classroom space felt like for you. When I think about this idea of voice, um, who has voice, where voice or knowledge is given. And I'm also directly connecting it to the kind of research we choose to do in our lives, right? I struggled um, in graduate school 
a lot because when we're talking theory and we're not talking practice, we're also not talking about how we want to impact and change people's lives, which influenced the subject matter that I wanted to write about. I wanted to ensure that anything I put out in the world aimed to empower, support, and encourage both Black women and Black families to get both access to the resources and things that they needed, but reclaim their own humanity in that process. So I would love for you to share with us kind of how your chosen trajectory in studying Black history or Black women's history or Black working class women's history. How was that a strategic and conscious decision? But then how is that read by the academy? And I'm also getting at this notion of how you can with this notion of objectivity that the academy presumes in anything or any kind of work that is done. Yes, yes. And uh, and one of my initial responses to that question is that I came into the field of or the discipline of history on a mission. And I had a justice focused mission, right? I'm not studying history just for the sake of, you know, advancing an intellectual project or because I'm curious about the topic. I really I really believe that if we understand our past, we can begin to address and redress past inequality and past injustice. And so I saw the challenge of writing about particularly Black women's struggles for equality and justice as a way to contribute to an African-American social justice project, a freedom project, essentially. And so that desire, though, came from my background. I grew up in Chicago on the South Side in the 80s and 90s during the height of the war on drugs, during the height of the crack epidemic. And so seeing all of that around me, the social devastation, the economic devastation, um, the mental health devastation in the community where I grew up, I knew I had to contribute in some way. And for me, um, using my gift my skills of intellect, that is how I saw myself wanting to contribute to the knowledge production around and surrounding um, Black communities in historical perspective, because I believe they have something to teach us for justice movements in the contemporary moment. And so I've always thought about my historical practice as a way of thinking about and thinking through justice. What does the freedom struggle look like? Who is involved? What does leadership mean? What does activism mean? That's always been important to me. And those are the questions of of my research, right? Who was involved? What does activism look like? How are we defining leadership? What are the, the focuses of our, our freedom fight? Um, why do some freedom fights get more attention than others? I unpack all of that in my research with the focus on Black women, because traditionally in the historical record, Black women's stories have been you know, marginalized, as Bell Hooks says, right? We are, we've been at the margins. And so in my work, I want to move us to the center. What happens when you bring Black women to the center of a historical analysis, right? And so that's what I do with my work. And I really, um, in, in my current book project, I'm working on uh, Black urban women, Black working women. And yes, that's who I am. That's where I come from. My family was a working class family. Um, and for a long time, I struggled with objectivity, I struggled with 
knowing that the stories I was uncovering kind of had, you know, both historical and personal and emotional connections to who I am. And I basically kept that hidden inside of me because I thought that um, or I knew that objectivity was required in the discipline of history. But, you know, my thoughts about that have changed over the years and we can talk about that. But objectivity for me is something I've always struggled with, but I've always known that it's an impossible it's an impossible standard because we always bring who and what we are to we to what we study. It's impossible to remove that from our from our research agendas, even if you're studying chemistry because you like molecules. Well, you're predisposed to molecules. So, you're you know, so it's just you can't remove who you are from what you study. I really, really appreciate you making that note because the academy has this way of making us believe that there's something objective about all the things that are written. And I think the reality of it is that scholars are simply not claiming their positionality and they're using their whiteness as a way to claim neutrality, which just isn't a politic that's real. So, you know, I, I appreciate you sharing that. And I recall in a former conversation that we had, you stated at one point that they claimed that your research was me-search. And I really wanted you to extrapolate a little bit on what that meant and how that aligns directly with how you have been understanding your own work and how your work is valued. Right, yeah, this idea of me-search, right, is, is that you engage in research that is basically identical to your identity, right? So that it then, it then becomes an exploration of me, right? <laughs> And so thinking about my identity, again, as coming from a family of Black, working class, South Side, urban women who have, you know, a history of being involved in the Great Migration, being involved in, you know, civil rights and social justice, freedom struggles, that can look very close to what I'm actually studying in the archive, right? That I'm studying my exact same experience. But what we know as historians is that the past does not repeat itself, right? Well, that's what we say, right? The past does not repeat itself because every historical moment has its own specificity, right? And that's what historians teach us, that when I go to the archive, although I may be studying Black urban women, Black urban women in the 1970s don't have the same experience as Black urban women in 1982 and 1990, etc. And so I have to actually research, find evidence, find sources, find artifacts that I can then use to craft an argument or narrative. I just can't look within myself and say, oh, this was my experience. And so Black urban women, Black urban working class women in the 1970s, they experienced the same thing. No, that is not the case at all. But I think some people think that is what is going on when you study a topic that is close to who you are, that you are simply using your experience as a substitute for actually doing the research. And that is not the case at all, because if it was the case, I would not have a PhD from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which is the number two program in women's and gender history in the country. So, Yes, let them know. I feel like your sharing really helps 
um, me think about a time where I was applying for the University of Minnesota's doctoral dissertation fellowship. It is a university-wide fellowship. The search committee or the selection committee, so to speak, is full of folks from econ to engineering to mm-hmm. the social sciences, right? And as someone who's within the social sciences, coming out of the gender, women, sexuality studies department, focusing on Black urban women's politics, I had to make myself legible to a group of folks, right, Um, Right. who did not see or value knowledge on Black women, urban Black women, even as a subject matter. Right. Um, Right. Right. The first year I applied, um, my advisor told me, because they send notes after you get rejected. Oh. She said, and I quote, the notes were so racist, I'm not going to share them with you. But then she said, we're applying again next year. And I know exactly how to write this thing. And what she taught me was, and this is just grant writing one-on-one, right? Because presumably somebody else has created the agenda, has right. created the criteria, and has validated what research is or isn't. Right. And in short, my understanding is they hit her with, this is me search. And then they broke down. And their language, why mm-hmm. I shouldn't be studying Black women, um, which she didn't feel comfortable sharing with me. But then the next year around, yeah, she really helped me figure out, so how do you get the grants using their language? Right. Right? She'd say things like, Brit, I know what you're trying to do, but we got to say it like this. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And it was mm-hmm. a dance. Let's just be clear. Right. It was a tap dance. I got that GDF fellowship the second year round. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But it taught me something really valuable. It also taught me, so it taught me a different form of code switching and grant making, but it also taught me they have no investment in real research with and for Black women. Right. I mean, it taught me that in a very visceral way in a a time and an age and my graduate student career where I was so hopeful. Yeah. And that, I think, is the, what scares me or what scared me about the academy, or about the professoriate, is that there's so much code switching that needs to happen that I was also fearful that I might switch and never get back. <laughs> and so I, I, I just thought, oh, my gosh, I don't want to get to the point where I'm always in the language of people who just don't have even, they don't even want the capacity to understand, right? And so is that balance. How do you um, kind of speak the language of, for that example, grant funders, because you need those coins to do the work, but how do you take that off? Because that's not, that's not what you actually want to be operating in, but you know that's a strategy you have to use to get where you want to go. Um, and some, and some, you know, professors, Some scholars, I think they are fully, they have not switched back. And so that is what I was afraid of. Like, I don't want to be the person who was like, I've been, I didn't switch so far that I'm like, who are you? What are you doing? Who are you doing this for? It sounds like in the figurative sense, we both leaped off. Yes, 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 yes. And I'm I'm really curious about um, that leap for you, because I know that leap for me was scary initially because I had to redefine success for myself and I had to be really clear about what my values were, Mm -hmm. even though I had mentors or others telling me otherwise. Right. And then there's this unknown um, as a Black woman, um, professional, Mm -hmm. both scholar, activist, 
um, trying to live your values and trying to make sense of how you want that to look because there's no roadmap for that. Right, right, right. And yes, yes. And I I was just going to say, you know, if I'm being quite honest, the leap from the professoriate to the museum sector, especially the Smithsonian because of what kind of institution it is, it felt like it was less of a jumping off of a a ledge in the sense that um, I, I haven't quite cut all of my ties to the professoriate, to the academy, because the Smithsonian and the academy are just so intertwined in some ways. But I think where I feel kind of the biggest leap is that I feel a freedom of creativity in my historical pursuit that I hadn't felt as a professor, right? That being in the public history world opens me up to um, paths and, and trajectories I just couldn't even imagine as a professor because there oh, there's a limited imagination when you're working in the academy. I mean, you can go from professor to administrator to professor again. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> there's just not a lot of opportunity. And so I feel like I made a baby leap in terms of the professional jump, but a bigger leap in the capacity and in the... Um, and the opportunity or the possibility of what I can do as a historian. And that kind of, that feels scary sometimes. But it also, when I think about how people in the academy think about museum professionals, it's also disheartening, right? Because there is this hierarchy. There's this professional intellectual hierarchy. Um, and museum professionals do not always get through, get the intellectual credit they deserve for the contributions they are making to public knowledge and public awareness about topics that are very, very important. And so all that to say, I'm still kind of thinking about the leap and still feeling out like, I think I, you know what it is? I think I'm still in motion. That's what it is. <laughs> I like that. Yes. I like that. I'm still in motion. Mm-hmm. And I want, I want to, to um, honor what you're saying and also say the same likeness. Mm-hmm. I took a leap, but I'm still connected to the academy. I reimagined my relationship. Yes. Oh, I love that. Yes, yes, so yes. So when I took my leap and I became a researcher at the Center for Urban and Regional Affairs, now senior researcher leading all their large-scale research projects, I found myself in a position to help them reimagine how they even approach the politics of engaged research. Wow. Um, so for me, I feel like, I have one foot in university, one foot in community because yes. I'm in an engaged research center whose mm-hmm. work centers around um, community-led research-engaged projects. Okay, um, yeah. So they have an ethical value, but let's just be clear. Most institutions say one thing but don't know how to live it out in action. Right. Right? I mean, that right. is like the definition of like white liberal politics in Minnesota, in my humble opinion, Right. That could be um, a national definition, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's real. Um, so I say it is a leap, but it doesn't mean that I'm completely disassociating myself from the academy. I have to reimagine mm-hmm. the skill sets that I've gained and learned and how I can make it accessible to the communities that I love and value the most. Right. Um, when and how I'll engage and move within those spaces yes. for the benefit of community. Right, right. 
Yes, I love I and I love the way you phrase that a reimagining of your position, right? Of of your relationship to the academy because that that resonates with my experience as well. And whereas when I was a professor, I just felt like I had to take the relationship as it was. I just was in this relationship and I couldn't really define or direct it in a way because I was on a tenure track. I was not yet tenured and so there was a power differential that was also happening there in my in my professional career, but being in some senses um, at a distance from the professor in the academy, I can then direct or, as you say, reimagine how I want to be in relationship to the academy and what that means for my career at a given moment. I am not beholden to acting a certain way because I'm trying to get tenure and I don't want to rock the boat, et cetera, et cetera. You're right. I can be my I can be more of my full intellectual and professional self or I'm trying to be. Right. Because I don't have this constraint of I have to fit into this this mode of who a black woman can and should be as a professor. And I think what I love about what you just said was I no longer have to perform or I feel like I have to perform. I can bring my full self. Right. 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 And prior to you made a mention of the colleagues of yours that you question if they're ever going to be able to do that. Right. 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 And I and I and I say that because you know how it goes. You know, you're in a meeting and you're talking about something in the meeting. And then after the meeting, you say all you want to say that you couldn't say or or because the politics of the meeting or you're in a personal social situation with a colleague and you realize, wow, this colleague has all of these different ideas and thoughts, but they're not able to bring that to the table because of some reason, some other mitigating factor. And I realized a lot of that was happening among my women of color colleague, professor friends and associates, right? That things were happening where we had to mute or silence ourselves. And we weren't even in a Zoom room, right? But we're muting and silencing ourselves because we don't feel comfortable or we don't feel safe. The, the space is not safe for us to bring our full self, our full thoughts, our full imagination, our full personal lives into the room in the same way that certain other colleagues who were not of color could. Um, And so there's this, again, this performative thing going on. Or if it wasn't performative, it was you were entering into a space with a quarter, an eighth of who you are. On behalf of Dr. Lewis and the production team behind Disruptive Narratives, I'd like to thank Dr. Bowden for this conversation. We hope we've done your story justice. We invite you to check out part two of this conversation with Dr. Crystal Moten right here. Disruptive Narratives is a production of KMOJ Radio and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities. Featuring Dr. Brittany Lewis, produced by Miranda Wilson, edited by Justice Sanchez. Made with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. To find more of our conversations, search for Disruptive Narratives wherever you find your podcasts.